Knowing Jesus is the best gift that any person can receive. That we've encountered him is the best thing that's happened in our lives, and making him known by our word and deeds is our greatest joy. If you're hungry for that encounter, if you're dying to know the love of God, which alone makes sense out of life, if you're longing to know that you matter so much and that his power can fill you with all that you need so that you can be the man or the woman that you want to be, then join me and dig into the scriptures and the teachings of the church so that we can find the life that Jesus has made us for. Ave Maria Radio presents Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. He's a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. While at the then Cardinal Mita Institute at the St. John's Center for Youth and Family, Father Ricardo gave a six-evening mission in the main chapel of the former seminary. The overall title was, No Greater Love Has a Man Than This. The topic and the title of this fourth mission session is Redemptive Suffering. Father Ricardo unfolds for us the vexing subject of redemptive suffering where we, or others, who are suffering greatly unite ourselves in prayer with Christ. Through this suffering and prayer, we lift up to Him the needs of others. Here is Father John Ricardo. Evening, everybody. I don't know if any of you have ever seen that anti-drug commercial where they have a young kid who's something to the effect of when you were on drugs, when you were high, you thought you wrote this as the answer to the question and it's something really intelligible, but you really wrote this and it's just gibberish. Well, that's kind of how I feel. I've been taking all this medication for about four days, so I hope this isn't gibberish. <laughs> Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Father, we continue to thank you for the great gift of the season of Lent. We continue to praise you for the gift of your Son, whose suffering has redeemed us and reconciled us to you and washed away our sins. Father, we pray tonight in a special way that you would help us to embrace our own sufferings in whatever form they come and to use them well for the kingdom and to cooperate with your Son in his work of redeeming the world. We pray tonight in a special way for those in our families and all those whom we love who are hurting. For those who are confined to hospitals or nursing homes or to their own homes. All those who might feel worthless or useless. Lord, give them grace to unite their sufferings to Jesus's. And may we grow, and may the world be redeemed through it. We ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, it's hard to believe this is already the fourth week of this Lenten mission. That means chocolate is not far away. The theme tonight that I want to try and um, lead us in contemplating is that of suffering, and most particularly that of redemptive suffering. So I have two images in mind from, again, Gibson's movie that I want to try to, if you've seen it, try to call these to the fore. One is the scene after Jesus walks out of the praetorium after he's been scourged and he's handed the cross and he embraces it. One of the other thieves or Rebels, he's not a thief, he's a rebel, uh, who's crucified with him, mocks him. You would embrace your cross, he says to him. Remember that scene? The other scene is, to, to my mind, one of the more um, humiliating scenes, but it's also one of the more powerful scenes in talking about suffering, is when Jesus gets to Golgotha, to Calvary, and they throw the cross down, and he crawls to the cross and gets on it himself. I don't know if you all noticed that, but Jesus wasn't forced onto the cross. He goes to it himself and mounts the cross himself. And if I'm not mistaken, it's either right then or it's just before that when um, Gibson does the flashback to Jesus' words in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. 
and I lay my life down for the sheep. No one takes my life from me, he says. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. And Frank Sheed, in one of the books that he wrote, Sheed wrote one of the three great biographies of Jesus. Fulton Sheen wrote one, Romano Guardini wrote another, and then Frank Sheed wrote a third. It's called To Know Christ Jesus. And in the section where Sheed's talking about Jesus' crucifixion, he has a line in there, which I think is apropos for what we're talking about tonight, where he says, the most active moment in Jesus' whole life, most active moment of his whole priesthood, is when he's hanging on the cross. Think about that. The most active moment of his whole life is not when he's walking on the water. It's not when he's raising Lazarus from the dead. It's not when he's multiplying the fish and the loaves. It's not when he's curing the blind man or the deaf. It's when he's hanging on the cross. Because he's hanging there by his choice. That's an act of his will. It's not something that's merely happening to him. It's something which he is choosing to do. And that's going to become very significant for us when we start talking about this whole aspect of redemptive suffering. As I look at um, some general themes about suffering, I then want to try to apply this to us in particular. And I want to try and flesh out something which, if you're at the men's conference or if you've heard Al Cresta talk about my comment to him when he was in the hospital about to lose his leg, I asked him to suffer well. And he kind of jokes about that now as to what in the world that means. But it's not, in, it's not a flip comment. I believe very strongly that if in fact we're to be mature Christians, mature sons and daughters of God, that we have to learn to suffer well. Suffering is absolutely inescapable in life. The mystery really isn't so much why is there suffering. The mystery is why don't we suffer more than we do given all that I have done with my life? Why don't I suffer more than I really do? So this isn't something esoteric or for those who really want to grow in deep spirituality. This is something which applies to all of us in life. How can we, in fact, suffer well? I want to clear up three things uh, right up front. Let's make sure we don't buy into the whole Jesus suffered so that you don't have to bit. You won't find that anywhere in the scriptures. Okay? In fact, what you will find in the scriptures is Jesus suffered, so are you. Suffer with him. It's a horrible fallacy to think that he has done all this so that we can just live through this life without any pain. It's also a horrible fallacy to think that, well, that person's suffering because they must just not have enough faith. If they had enough faith in God, he'd heal them. That works well in a land of the prosperity gospel. Try telling that to a child who's starving in Guatemala. You don't have enough to eat just because you don't have enough faith. It doesn't work. Nor does it work to say that you're suffering because you must have directly done something wrong and this is a punishment for it. We all remember the story of Job, hopefully. Right? Remember Job's quote-unquote friends? who come to quote-unquote comfort him in his affliction. Here he is sitting in the ashes, scraping himself with potsherds, and they come to him and say, well, come on, think. You must have done something horribly wrong. That's why this is happening to you. No, I haven't done anything. Think harder. So these three um, incomplete approaches to suffering, we have to make sure that we don't buy into from the get-go. 
Let's just remember Jesus' words, huh? If any man would come after me, he must take up his cross daily, deny himself, and lay down his life. That entails some suffering. The cross, again, for us, particularly us who've seen the movie, should never simply be an image or a metaphor. It was no image to his audience in the first century, or no mere image anyway. They had a very graphic understanding of what he was saying when he said, you must take up your cross. It meant that to follow him is a narrow road. And there are times when it will hurt. Jesus' words in John 15, just to give you another text. John 15, beginning in uh, verses 18. Where Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then James, in his letter, writes briefly, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, all joy, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. My favorite text, we could go on and on and on, just to make sure that we understand that suffering is not some something which is only going to happen to some. It is going to be part and parcel of the gospel. But my favorite text is from the Old Testament, from the book of Sirach, one of the deuterocanonical books. It's the first reading at my funeral. It's a long reading. If you're going to be there, be prepared. <laughs> and the point of choosing this as the first reading is to make clear to people who come that to follow Jesus and to live the gospel is to embrace a difficult life. And the opening line in Sirach, chapter 2, is, My son, when you aspire to serve the Lord, prepare yourself for an ordeal. And then it just goes on from there. (laughs) Now, this isn't at all to say that the person who's suffering hasn't done something wrong, or that they don't have much faith. They may be true, It is to say that those aren't direct causes of the person who is suffering. Suffering surely has entered the world as a result of sin. In Eden, before the fall, there was no pain. There was no death. Even the animals weren't killed, huh? God didn't give the animals to man, to Adam and Eve, to eat before the fall. That only happens after the flood with Noah. Man is able to live somehow just on the subsistence of the ground, from the plants and the vegetables. Death is not a part of Eden, nor is suffering or pain in any way. So in that regard, suffering does have as its cause sin. But when I suffer or when you suffer, Though it's true to say that the suffering has come from sin, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's come from my sin or from your sin. Follow that? Sometimes people can become very scrupulous with this and think that God must be doing something to me because I've done something in my life. Well, you probably have done something in your life. But that doesn't mean that God's doing something to you. That's important for us to make sure we understand. We also want to make clear that suffering is not a good. As I start talking about the aspect of redemptive suffering, make sure you hear me 
rightly in this. Suffering is not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. It's a lack, an evil, a deprivation of a good. It was not the intent. Now, suffering can be of two kinds. It can be physical, or it can be what we call moral. When suffering is physical, it means that my body hurts, like mine right now. Or it can be moral when my soul hurts. And when we say my soul, we're not talking about this thing floating around inside of me. We're talking about me, the I. Okay? When Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, in the Magnificat, she says, I magnify the Lord. The Jewish people know no split between body and soul the way Greeks did. And many of us wrongly understand the relationship of the human person and how we're all put together. We're a mix, okay? We're body and soul all put together as one. So mortal suffering is when the eye suffers, but it's not necessarily a physical pain. So there's lots of causes of that. Danger of death. That could be a moral suffering. Loneliness. The loss of a loved one. Difficulty understanding why it is that the wicked prosper. All these things are are moral sufferings, okay, which are very strong pains which we feel the remorse of our own conscience over something that we've done in the past. That causes us pain and anguish with how we once lived our lives. It's not a physical pain. It's a very real pain. That's a moral suffering. So whenever we experience any kind of evil, which again is to be understood as a lack or a deprivation of the good, it can be said that we suffer. In fact, the Holy Father, in a a letter that he writes, uh, a great letter, by the way, I put it on one of the handouts that's out front. I'll give you three books on suffering. This is one of them. It's very thin. Called Salvifici Dolores, or salvific suffering, the redemptive nature of suffering. In there, he defines suffering as the undergoing of evil before which man shudders. The undergoing of evil before which man shudders. And while suffering, as we're going to talk about, can lead to great good, it's also important to make sure we understand it can cause great damage. There are many people who reject God because of their suffering. Because of what they go through, either physical or moral, they think, for one reason or another, God has abandoned them, or he doesn't care, or he isn't good, or he isn't very powerful, or he's just left me on my own. And so they feel rejected by God, And so they themselves reject him too. And yet, Jesus has made as the firmest basis for our redemption, the greatest good that there is, suffering. You and I were saved by his suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 writes or reads that it was only fitting that he would make him perfect through what he suffered on our behalf. Somehow Jesus to the nth understands what you and I go through, both physically and morally. He understands the dregs of physical pain And he understands the dregs of the moral pain. That pain that doesn't simply affect the body. Again, remember when Jesus is on the cross, when we watch him hanging there in the movie, we see and we are overwhelmed with the physical pain which has been inflicted upon him. But the physical pain is nothing in comparison with the spiritual pain which he takes on in becoming sin for us, which you can't possibly capture in film. 
You can only capture the physical element, which they do quite well. And in the face of suffering, ultimately we ask, why? Why me? Why this? Why now? And when someone comes into my office and they're hurting, maybe they've lost a loved one or they have cancer or a child's going through a tough time or a parent is suffering through Alzheimer's and they ask why, they really don't ask me. They really ask God. And when we ask God, we're asking him who is himself suffering on the cross when we ask the question. That's again one of the reasons why it's so important to have the crucifix with you all the time. When I'm suffering, and when I ask the question why, and while I may not get an answer to the question why, doesn't mean I can't ask it. It's important to ask the question while looking at him who is himself suffering. Somehow that helps. It helps quite powerfully for me anyway. I also want to make sure that we grasp nothing, objectively speaking, compares to the injustice and the violence which was enacted upon Jesus. We are all rightly horrified by so much of the evil that we see in the world today or that we recount in history. Genocides, tremendous acts of random violence, whatever it is you want to call to mind, the degradation of men or women or children, whatever it is that we readily think of as tremendous acts of injustice. They are, to be sure, but nothing could ever rival the injustice or the violence that was done to Jesus. For he is the innocent one, the guiltless one, the sinless one, the all-loving one, the creator who is being put to death by his creature, namely us. And on the level of injustice or violence, nothing can compare to that. It's important always to remember that as we're dealing with this reality of suffering. But what Jesus has done in the cross has forever linked suffering to love. Again, remember Sheed's line. He's there, not passively, but actively. He's actively giving breath to the people who are pounding the nails into his hands. He's actively giving breath to the people who mock him. He's doing all this out of love for us so that, in fact, you and I can be redeemed. And that's what transforms all of suffering forever now. So in Christ's cross, the Holy Father writes, redemption has occurred through suffering, and suffering has been redeemed. For now, we are all called to share not only in the redemption, we all not only share in what Jesus has done for us in his work of the cross, but we're also called to share in the suffering through which the redemption happened. If you have a Bible, which I don't expect you to, you came to Mass, why would you bring a Bible? St. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, writes one of the most confusing and troubling verses I think you'll find in the New Testament. Colossians 1, verse 24, where Paul writes, Now I rejoice 
in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. For the sake of his body, which is the church. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. For in my own flesh, in my body, I fill up or I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, let's make sure we don't think that Jesus' suffering is somehow incomplete. Like, boy, he almost did enough to atone for most of us, but for some of us, we had to have a little extra, and so somebody else will make up for it. That's not what Paul's saying. It is complete. It is enough. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, and his final words are, it is accomplished, that's a cry of victory. It is fulfilled. I have done all that which I came to do. What is accomplished? Redemption. That's accomplished. Reconciliation with the Father is accomplished. It's complete. It's done. The way is open. But the way is open to us in that it's open for you and I now to participate in. And that word, participate, is a very significant word in Catholic teaching. For example, there's only one Son of God. His name is Jesus. But you and I, by baptism, participate in his unique sonship. We become, by adoption, what he is by nature. So that God calls us now son or daughter. We have become, in the Son, sons or sons and daughters in the Son. Follow that? There's only one priest. His name is Jesus. By baptism, all of us have been made to participate in, to share in the priesthood of the faithful. That means all of us are called to offer up our lives as a sacrifice to God. That's what priests do. But there's only one priest. We just share in, participate in his priesthood. Those of us who've been ordained participate in his priesthood in a different way, both by degree and kind, Vatican II teaches. There's only one Redeemer. His name is Jesus. No one can do what he could do. But by baptism, you and I are invited to participate in his own work of redemption. Follow that? In other words, there's something for us to do in this life. It's not as if God's just done it all, which he has, and we just sit back and receive it. We do receive it, but then we must do something with it. We're invited to do something with it. In fact, the Holy Father talks about suffering ultimately, if we're going to understand it, must be understood as a call, a vocation even. That's um, one of the handouts that I put out there on the front as well. I want to read that in a second. But sometimes I think our approach to suffering is something like we look at Jesus on the cross. This is the ultimate example. And our response is, oh, Lord, you did all that for me. Help me to just go through this. Or I can bear with this if you did all that for me. And we think that's the Christian approach to suffering. No, it's not. That's not the point. Nor is the point to say, wow, I'm glad I don't have what you have. 
I guess I can handle this because I could have gotten that. That's not the Christian approach to suffering. The Christian approach to suffering is to do something with it. To use it. And that is what it means to suffer well. People often used to use the expression, offer it up. If you know me, you know I hate that expression. I hate it because I think it's passive. I don't think that's at all what we're called to do. I think what I'm called to do in whatever I suffer, whether it's physical or moral, is to unite it very actively with Jesus' suffering on the cross for someone by name. That's what I think we're supposed to do with suffering. That's what it means to make up in our own flesh what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Fulton Sheen always used to say he wanted to walk through hospitals and all these people who were lying there, who feel useless, who feel as if there's nothing for them to do, and to give them purpose. And the purpose is to give them people to pray for. Why? Because when you suffer, your prayers have got to be, if they're not at the top, close to the top as you can get, in the sense of being heard. Why? Because when you suffer and you pray for someone else, that's a tremendous act of love. Because when I hurt, I don't want to think of anybody else. I want you to think of me. I'm hurting. Care for me. We're inclined to be selfish. That makes sense. You know, I can't breathe or I'm hurting from my chemotherapy or whatever it is that's going on. I hurt. Care for me. That's a natural reaction. I'm grieving. Care for me. And rightly so, we need people to do that. But when I can do something with whatever the pain I experience is, and I can take that, and I can unite it, and I think, I just look at a cross, and I mount it to the cross, and I say, Lord, this measly little whatever that I'm going through, I unite to your cross and to your sufferings for the sake of this couple, that man, that woman without addiction, that child who's hurting, whatever it is. And God uses that somehow. And I can tell you how across the board in every single case it's true. When I go into a hospital and I anoint somebody, or I pray with somebody in a nursing home, and you walk in and they, particularly if they haven't seen anybody for a while, and their shoulders are down and their head is down, and they look as if they're just biding time, and you can ask them, you know what, I have something I need you to do for me. And I'll tell them how powerful their prayers are now because of the pain that they're going through. And I'll write down on a piece of paper a couple whose marriage is on the brink. Or a young girl who's contemplating having an abortion. Or a child who's going through a tough time. And I'll just leave the name with them. And I'll say, you know what? When you hurt, just remember this person. And somehow in heaven, that person will thank you and walk up to you and honor you for what you did. And all of a sudden, you'll see them begin to sit up. Their shoulders become a little bit more erect. And they feel like they have dignity again. Because we live in a culture which says, if I can't do anything, I'm of no use. That's a lie. The Holy Father is a tremendous model of this right now for us. A man who's battling his Parkinson's, who's losing faculties, who continues to persevere, who shows us not only what you can still do in the midst of uh, becoming elderly or in the face of great sufferings, but also the value of redemptive suffering. 
That's suffering well. If you got that uh, handout as you walked in, uh, I copied something from the Holy Father's letter on suffering. I just want to read it. Because I think it's a sober look, but I think it's an important look at what we're talking about. He writes, This interior process does not always follow the same pattern. It often begins and is set in motion with great difficulty. Even the very point of departure differs. People react to suffering in different ways. But in general, it can be said that almost always the individual enters suffering with a typically human protest and with the question, why? It's good to know the Holy Father knows that. He asks the meaning of his suffering and seeks an answer to this question on the human level. Certainly, he often puts this question to God and to Christ. Furthermore, he cannot help noticing that the one to whom he puts the question is himself suffering and wishes to answer him from the cross, from the heart of his own suffering. Nevertheless, it often takes time, even a long time, for this answer to begin to be interiorly perceived. For Christ does not answer directly, and he does not answer in the abstract this human questioning about the meaning of suffering. Man hears Christ's saving answer as he himself gradually becomes a sharer in the sufferings of Christ. The answer which comes through this sharing by way of the interior encounter with the Master is in itself something more than the mere abstract answer to the question about the meaning of suffering. For it is above all a call. It is a vocation. Christ does not explain in the abstract the reasons for suffering. But before all else, he says, follow me. Come, take part through your suffering in this work of saving the world, a salvation achieved through my suffering, through my cross. Let me read that again. Come, he says this to all of us, Tonight, with whatever suffering we have, come, take part through your suffering in this work of saving the world, a salvation achieved through my suffering, through my cross. Gradually, as the individual takes up his cross, spiritually uniting himself to the cross of Christ, the salvific meaning of suffering is revealed before him. He does not discover this meaning at his own human level, but at the level of the suffering of Christ. At the same time, however, from this level of Christ, the salvific meaning of suffering descends to man's level and becomes, in a sense, the individual's perfect personal response. It is then that man finds in his suffering interior peace and even spiritual joy. For St. Paul speaks of such joy in the letter to the Colossians. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. A source of joy is found in the overcoming of the sense of uselessness. The uselessness of suffering. A feeling that is sometimes very strongly rooted in human suffering. This feeling not only consumes the person interiorly, but seems to make him a burden to others. The person feels condemned to receive help and assistance from others, and at the same time seems useless to himself. That's the lie. They're not a burden, and they're not useless. They're the ones who can most actively unite what they're going through to Christ's cross, even if the only conscious thing they can do is lie there and suffer. I give to a family member whom I love greatly a list of names to pray for. The person can't do anything, really. Often can't pray very coherently because of all the medication that they take. But I send all the names of the people that I pray for who, or who come to me and ask me to pray for them. And they just keep a legal pad. 
And they write page after page after page after page of all the people that I've asked them to pray for. And they just remember and read the names off the page as they lie there hurting. That is redemptive suffering. The discovery of the salvific meaning of suffering in union with Christ transforms this depressing feeling. Faith in sharing in the suffering of Christ brings with it the interior certainty that the suffering person completes what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. The certainty that in the spiritual dimension of the work of redemption, he is serving, like Christ, the salvation of his brothers and sisters. Therefore, the person who is suffering is carrying out, the Pope writes, an irreplaceable service. In the body of Christ, which is ceaselessly born of the cross of the Redeemer, it is precisely suffering, permeated by the spirit of Christ's sacrifice, that is the irreplaceable mediator and author of the good things which are indispensable for the world's salvation. It is suffering more than anything else which clears the way for the grace which transforms human souls. Suffering, more than anything else, makes present in the history of humanity the powers of the redemption. In that cosmic struggle between the spiritual powers of good and evil, spoken of in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, human sufferings united to the redemptive suffering of Christ constitute a special support for the powers of good and open the way to the victory of these salvific powers. And so the church sees in all Christ's suffering brothers and sisters, as it were, a multiple subject of his supernatural power. How often is precisely to them that the pastors of the church appeal, and precisely from them that they seek help and support. That's my whole point of when I go to the hospitals and asking people to pray. That's suffering well. The gospel of suffering is being written unceasingly, and it speaks unceasingly with the words of this strange paradox. The springs of divine power gush forth precisely in the midst of human weakness. Those who share in the sufferings of Christ preserve in their own sufferings a very special particle of the infinite treasure of the world's redemption and can share this treasure with others. The more a person is threatened by sin, the heavier the structures of sin which today's world brings with it, the greater is the eloquence with which human suffering possesses in itself. And the more the church feels the need to have recourse to the value of human sufferings for the salvation of the world. What the church needs direly, horrifically badly, is mature men and women with faith to suffer well. To suffer for priests, to suffer for families, to suffer for children who've wandered from the faith, to suffer for peace in the world, to suffer for justice, to suffer for salvation. We need men and women whose gut or instant reaction won't be to curse God, but rather to understand that whatever has come my way is just what the Pope writes, a call, a vocation, an invitation for me to cooperate with the Lord in the most heroic task and the greatest task that there is in life, redeeming the world. It's not romantic, it isn't any fun. It doesn't bring pleasure. But it does bring joy. And joy isn't fleeting. It also brings an incredible reward. Well, let's end with that. Questions? Yes? Thank you. That actually is the one thing I didn't mention. It is Lent, after all, at the time of penance. So the question had to do with saints who take on sufferings for themselves. Suffering can come one of two ways. It can either come from something being inflicted on me, which I have no control over, 
or something that I would embrace or take on myself. And that's what penance is. Something that I choose to do, okay? Whether it's fasting or whether it's um, getting up early or going to bed late, whatever it might be, keeping vigils, whatever that is that I might do as an act of penance, which we're doing in this season of Lent. If I do that simply as an opportunity to lose some weight, you know, or a chance to do more in the morning, or whatever it is, without uniting it to the cross for some specific intention, there's no merit to it. When the saints take penances on themselves, and when we, in the season of Lent, take penances on ourselves, we're supposed to do them for others, for particular intentions. And the only image that, for me, is most helpful, I don't understand how this works, okay? Let me just tell you that. But the image that, to me, is most helpful is if you can picture the western coast of a country, which has the most severe erosion on the water. The east coast has a gradual erosion. The west coast, it just has cliffs. Especially if you've been to Ireland, you know that. So after hundreds of thousands and millions of years, the waves erode that coastline and they break it up. It used to look like this, now it looks like this, right? Well, I think in our penances, when I take on something, however small it is for someone else, because that's an act of love, that's what it is, okay? Otherwise, there's no point to it. My small act of love serves like one of the waves which begins to erode the person's resistance if that's what I'm praying for to God and to his grace or it serves to bring God's grace if they're asking for you know we're praying for conversion or we're praying for them to receive whatever it is that we might be asking the Lord to give them so when I take penances on or when the saints take penances on when you take penances on Those are to be acts of love which are supposed to be directed outward to someone. Because I'll do penances for people, but I'm not going to tell you who I'm doing it for. So you might, uh, in the season of Lent, you might be fasting for your husband once a week or fasting for your wife or fasting for a child who's away from the faith or a a grandchild who's having a difficult time or a, a parent who's suffering or whatever the case might be. We do something to take it on, and Lent has always been understood because this is a time when Jesus is out in the desert. It's our time to take on properly suffering. That's the time to do that. Is that helpful? Yeah, Paco. Well, the question is, Christ has obviously risen in glory, huh? so in what sense does Christ continue to suffer? Uh, in the sense that we're his body, and, his, and that's not an image when we say we're the body of Christ. That's not an image. That's a reality. We are the body of Christ. He's the head. We're the body. And the body is still in pain. We're still in travail. We're still groaning. If you look at Romans 8, huh? all of creation is groaning, longing for the redemption of the body. And we're not there yet. In Catholic theology, there's this um, also significant expression, the already and the not yet. We're already saved. Okay, it's been done. It's complete. It's finished. But it's not yet fully enacted, if you will. We're still living in the mess. I'm already redeemed, but not yet fully. All you got to do is walk around with me for a day. You'll see that. Okay? I am holy, but not yet entirely. <laughs> okay, you follow? So, in the sense that the body continues to suffer, so we can say in that sense that Christ still suffers, for we are his body. But he has certainly risen into glory, by all means. Yes, last question. The church hasn't pre-sav. You're not, you're not asking the right guy. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be flip. You're not asking the right guy. You've got to ask your pastor why he's taking Jesus off the cross. Yeah, that's it. Who gave you the authority to remove the crucifix from the sanctuary? Because the church teaches that it's supposed to be the focal point. And it's supposed to be on the altar. 
That's why that crucifix is on the altar, by the way. We've all been there, I know. It's disconcerting as all get out. Unfortunately, it's not unrelated to what we're talking about because in removing Christ's sufferings on the cross from our sight, we remove the reality that I am called also to suffer. When I don't see him hanging there, and I don't understand that what's happening in the Christian life is to grow in conformity to Christ, which means to share in his sufferings, as Paul says in Philippians. I want to share in his sufferings, and if possible, to share in his resurrection. When that's removed from my sight, I'm more inclined to believe the prosperity gospel and the whole nonsense that Jesus suffered so that I don't have to, and that all this life's about is sharing in his glory. It's not. It's sharing in his cross. So I just encourage you to talk to your your pastor and ask him why you've done that. All right. So next week we are going to talk about Our Lady. And uh, perhaps we'll also talk about Mary's whole role. Because Mary, I think one of the things that the film does quite powerfully is show Mary's involvement with Jesus in suffering. From the very beginning, when Mary says, it has begun, Lord, to the scene when she walks to where the Lord's hanging and his chains. Remember that scene when she walks into the temple? She's just kind of looking around and you're wondering, what is she doing? And then she crawls over this one part and she puts her head on the ground. And she's lying directly above the Lord. She's sharing in the Lord's suffering in a unique way. That's what she's doing throughout. So she's a model for us in that. So we'll talk a little bit more about um, Our Lady next week and the mission will continue. Let's just stand and I'll give you a final blessing. The Lord be with you. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you, protect you from all evil, and fill you with every good and grace. Amen. God bless you all. On this edition of Christ is the Answer, Father John Ricardo continued preaching the mission series he did years ago. His title that evening was simply Redemptive Suffering. It was the fourth of six talks that comprised the mission. This has been Christ is the Answer program number 818. For a CD of this or any of our programs, go to AveMariaRadio.net and click on Store or order by leaving a voicemail at 734-930-4506. 734-930-4506 for program number 818. Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit and is currently the executive director of a nonprofit organization called Acts 29, which exists to work with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. He was ordained in 1996. Christ is the Answer was originally recorded and edited by Henry Root and is a production of AveMariaRadio.net. Tune in next time when Father John Ricardo addresses a topic of Christian concern from the Catholic perspective. This is Ave Maria Radio.